Hey everybody, it is episode 116 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you for this intro from Austin, Texas. I'm going to be introing my interview with Adam Goucher today and our discussion on the running with the Buffaloes. As I talk a little bit about with Adam in the interview, the Running with the Buffaloes book by Chris Lear was a big influence in my life, becoming not only a fan of the sport, but also becoming a coach. And so I'm excited to break all of that down with Adam today. I'm actually going to do a short intro today. I'm going to be doing a longer episode this week specifically on running current events that will release sometime midweek. We've got a lot to talk about on current events and I'd rather not have to be rushed to to get to those discussions. We've got a indoor mile record to talk about. We've got the Atlanta Track Club Go for the Gold Test Olympic Trials event that recently went off on what will be part of the Olympic Trials course for the marathon next February. And we've got to talk about the Tokyo Marathon. So stay tuned for a separate episode, special edition coming midweek on that. For this one, we're just going to leave it to my interview with Adam, which was a fascinating discussion. I got to do this with him in Boulder when I made the trip also to chat with Kara on our Coach Kara episode, episode 113 with Gene. All of that was done in one trip. And the two of them together couldn't have been more accommodating. So again, thank you to Adam and Kara and their agent, Shanna Burnett, for hosting us when we were there. I wanted to give a quick intro on Adam before we jump into the interview. While Adam is a proud is proud to be Mr. Kara Goucher as he has had a shirt made for himself. He is also a badass runner in his own right. Four-time NCAA champion in the 3K, 5K, and also cross-country, which the book Running with the Buffaloes is all about. He also is a multi-time U.S. champion, qualified for the Olympics in the 5K, and finished sixth at World Cross in 2006. That obviously is a stacked field every year at World World Cross. That that is still the highest finish by an American between now and 1986. So it's a very very long time. Obviously, that's an incredible race to be a part of. So that sixth place finish might be his best finish on a global scale as a pro. He probably didn't quite reach his full potential as a pro because he was plagued by injury. But his tenacity on the race course, his certainly his talent and the dedication and commitment that he put into the sport is one of those that is unmatched and I think is definitely an example for a lot of young men and others who have followed him in the sport. So it's exciting for me to have this discussion with Adam about his journey, his senior season to try to get and achieve the NCAA cross-country title. So let's jump into my interview with Adam. All right. Welcome, Adam Goucher, to the show. How are you doing today, Adam? Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks, Chris. We're excited to be here with you at the Run the Edge offices in Boulder. It was fun to come all the way to actually do this in person. Well, thank you for coming all this way. I I'm, was, yeah, very happy that you came all the way out here and um, much more personable. Yeah. personal and um yeah so thanks for coming here and having me on the show yeah well it's fun to to do this with you as well as we've got Kara a little bit later i wanted to start before we jump into talking about running with the buffaloes i wanted to start by talking about your company run the edge and your challenge run the year it's to it's 2019 and so you're challenging people to run 2019 miles during the year whether they do that individually or as a group i know as we arrived you just mentioned the number of packages you guys sent out already for people that have that have stepped up to the challenge so far in 2019. Tell us more about Run the Edge and where you guys are with the Run the Year Challenge. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Run the Edge is through the years has gone through a lot of different things. You know, as a company, we've we've grown and and done uh, many many different things. But when we got into uh, the kind of the virtual fitness challenges um, when we started it five years ago. Um, we had no idea the 
the um, impact it would have and no idea the number of people that were interested and excited about doing it. And um, so it became kind of our, it's our number one um, thing we do right now. And um, it's very fulfilling, very exciting for us and our team. And, um, you know, it's the, the challenge this year, we decided, I, we know that a lot of people, um, they look at 2019 miles and they freak out. They're like, no, I'm, I can't do that even with a team. So I'm not going to, I'm not just forget it. They won't sign up. Um, so this year we kind of gave them the option of 500, you know, um, a 500, a thousand, 1500, and then 2019 miles. Um, and you have a, in the metal, you have a, a specific coin that you put in and it's a spinner. And, um, so you have the metal, the coin, uh, that f- spins it, you know, you can put it in at 500 miles and then flip it over at, at um, a thousand and, um, so on. So, um, that I think really opened the door for getting more people in and more people involved. And, and, um, it's been a great year and, um, yeah, it's just, it's awesome. And from what I understand, people can still join. So if people are interested in still doing the challenge, what would they need to do to sign up? Oh, all they need to do is just go to runtheedge.com and, um, you know, follow the links to, uh, to the uh, sign-up page. And it's very easy because <laughs> it's the most prominent thing we have on the site. So, yeah. How many people do you guys have doing the challenge? And, and what, what reach do you get? Is it global at this point? Oh, yeah, it's global. Um, we have over, I'm not sure how many countries this year, but we're usually in the 50s. Well, um, and, um, for the, for the overall number of participants, we, we kind of don't like to give that number out <laughs> because as Fair soon enough. we did that in 20, um, uh, our very first year in 2015 and, and, uh, next thing we know we had, I mean, which is fine. Competition is good, but, um, <laughs> we had like a, a, a thousand other people trying to do what we do, which they absolutely can't do. Right, right. So, um, <laughs> it's uh <laughs> yeah. nobody can, we're we're without a doubt like we we know what we're doing and and we put on the best hands down so um but we are over um over the 40,000 wow well over that's so, amazing yeah and it sounds like from our conversations in the past that you have a pretty good community that's been built around that and a lot of stories that come with those participants mm. give us an example what's some of the cooler stuff you see I mean, it's, that's what makes this whole thing so fulfilling and exciting for us. Uh, we have people that will write in in the testimonials, and they'll just, just talk about how it's changed their life. Um, we have people that have lost um, well over 100 pounds, um, and, and this challenge got them into walking, you know, which um, got them into a little bit of running. Um, so, and then that was enough to really get their fitness level up and burn off the, burn off the extra weight. And, um, we have one, one guy's, uh, lost over 200 pounds, which is the best we have. We've had a, um, we've had a couple, uh, people meet and get married, <laughs> which is pretty That's awesome. Cool. And how did um, they meet? Did they meet they, through a message board or? Yeah. So we have, um, we have a private Facebook group that goes along with it. So we have thousands of people that will sign into that. And it's a very, very positive, uplifting community. And, you know, they post very, very active. And so they met through the group. Now we have a, um, our, our mileage tracker app, online app, and um, messaging and creating teams and finding people you can follow and stuff like that. So um, it makes it a little bit easier. But yeah, they met through... Through, through the Facebook group and, and through the challenge and we're married, a, uh, I think about a year later. That's <laughs> Pretty awesome. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. I should have asked you to officiate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, so I think it's so cool to see you in the element of the challenge because as a fan reading this book, running with the Buffaloes and following your career early on in the sport, you were a, a brash aggressive human at least that's the way it came out in competition mm-hmm. and as i was reading running with the buffaloes again recently i couldn't help but be struck by the cockiness of the young adam goucher <laughs> where you were talking about how you could beat pre in his prime yeah. i think at one point in the book and and after you were beaten by by julius at one point during, earlier in the season you said well, I'll, I'll destroy him when, when I'm ready. 
where where does that cockiness that that almost arrogance borderline arrogance come from where did it come from from that younger adam um i i think that cockiness can be um misinterpreted um i'm very intense i'm a very intense person and with intensity you have your confidence that you build um when with when being successful when when putting in the miles when training hard and um getting out there and competing and um you know in the book yeah there were a few places that uh where i said things and (laughs) and that's fine because i knew i was confident that i would you know my senior year in 2000 i was not i mean sorry 1998 um I wasn't, I wasn't going to be denied. I, I knew that that was my year. I, I couldn't, I was going out on top and I knew going into that when Julius Mwangi beat me at pre-nationals, I had, I was running a hundred mile a week that week and it was, and training hard, no taper whatsoever. And so I knew how much faster I would be the next time we met. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I get that today too. I get people that Honestly, it's the, it kind of is like, what people are like, oh, he's like, they get, they're like scared of me. <laughs> like, and I'm like, what, like, they're just kind of intimidated. And I'm like, right. what? and then they kind of get to know me and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe, like, I used to be so like nervous to meet you or, or, or to be around you. I just thought you were always just like, uh, and I, it's just an intensity and it's just the way I live my life. And it's not even, I don't know I'm doing it, honestly. Right. Um, and a lot of times I say, it's just my face. I can't help it. <laughs> you know, it's just the way, you know, I just, like, yeah, you know, I guess I got, I guess I have like, um, yeah, just that face and that people say, Ooh, I don't know. So are you still that intense? I, I am. Um, but it's not, I mean, no, I'm not as nearly as intense as I was before. I mean, uh, you know. I've gone through so many experiences and had so many experiences and realized what's, you know, true, like the most important things in life, uh, for, for me. And, um, but yes, I'm still intense, but not as intense as I was. And, um, mainly because I don't compete anymore. Yeah. 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 I had a mentor one time tell me that humility is not saying that you're lesser than you are but actually having an accurate representation of your abilities Mm -hmm. and so he would emphasize that it's okay to be confident if you can back it up right and so that's what you're talking about you were ready to back it up yeah i was ready to back it up and i mean i remember one time that my first uh um no my second ncaa 3000 title and talking with uh tom reese and um adam batliner and a few of the other guys and just being like no, I'm going to win. I'm going to win. They're like, well, what are you going to do? And I go, well, I'm just going to go to lead and I'm not going to let anyone pass me. (laughs) And that's exactly what I did. I led from the gun to the finish and Bernard Lagat sat on me the entire way. (laughs) He tried to outkick me the last 50, couldn't do it. And I ran the collegiate record, 746. And, you know, I mean, it was, there's that confidence, you know, it's that, it's not like, going out and talking shit, you know, like I'm not that person. I, I actually get uncomfortable with talking about with people like how good I was. And, and even while I was training people, I, I'm just not, I'm kind of uncomfortable with it. It kind of makes me like, you know, um, (laughs) you'd rather prove it on the course. I'd rather prove it on the course. And, and, you know, Carol be like, you, you need to realize like what you did for the sport and you need to realize what, you know, like what your impact was and, you know, how, how good you are. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, yeah, whatever, you know, and she, and it drives her crazy, but I don't know. It's just kind of the way I am. So it's, I think people misinterpret and misinterpreted kind of the way I was and, and that's okay. Um, but it, I think more intensity and, um, confidence, which is more than, yeah. Did that confidence come from training or did it come before that do you remember always being confident as a kid yeah i i think i did you know i started running my sophomore year of high school um before that i played football every season and um you know i did track in the spring in junior high school and 
I did just about every event and I ran the mile and I, and I won the mile and it, you know, people recognize that as that's possibly probably my best event. And so they tried to get me into cross country the next year when, you know, when it moved into my sophomore year and I was like, nah, I'm not doing that. I'm <laughs> playing football. Um, and then literally, um, just by chance, I, I was signed, I went to sign up, you know, at school and it was a mass, huge line and, um, I had to get to work. Um, I was working at a local feed store, pitching bales of hay and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And, um, so I had to go. Uh, and that night my sisters and my mom kind of talked me into just trying cross country. And, and if it wasn't something that I liked or wasn't for me, then go back to football the next year. And I'm like, ah, all right, I'll give it a shot. And then two and a half, three months later, I was a state champion. <laughs> so it was just kind of like, whoa, um, you definitely have your doubts. And usually when training is going good for me, I was very um, confident in my ability um, and, and my confidence to just get out there and grind and, and grind with anybody. So, um, yeah, that's, yeah. Confidence I'm fascinated by. And I was, I've been asking this question recently to several athletes. I was talking to Kate Grace recently about confidence and she had, she always remembered having an intrinsic confidence. And I asked her, is that born or is that something that was developed? And she naturally, like most people said, it's a mix of both. One of the things she talked about was having influences in her life who were telling her that she could do things and having those positive voices helped build her confidence. Where do you think it came from for you other than just the work? Um, <clears throat> I think just, I think that I was so competitive, I mean, as a kid and just, I just wanted to be the best and I would put myself out there and, um, even if I, you know, I wasn't the best, I would be out there playing the hardest, um, whether it was basketball or football. And, um, so, you know, I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I think it just kind of, kind of came about, honestly, mm -hmm. um, besides, you know, kind of realizing what my ability was, what I was capable of and what, um, what I was best at, you know, then that allowed me to, um, you know, develop it and, um, get, be, become, and knowing that I wanted to become the best I could be. And I wanted, I wanted to be people. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to <laughs> I win. Wanted to win. Yeah. So, yeah. um, but yeah, it, uh, so I didn't have a lot of, um, people telling me, you know, as a young kid, you know, you're, you're, you can do whatever you want. It just, um, I think it just kind of intrinsically came, kind of came with me and that's just kind of who I am. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It seems, seems like you see both kinds. And I asked myself that question as a coach because I want to help people be confident. And I also asked myself that as a parent because I have kids and I want mm -hmm. them to be confident. And, and so part of me has pressure because I think I can do something. And part of me doesn't because I know that a lot of it's just built in. Yeah. And, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pursuit of mine that I'm trying to understand as a parent. You know, one of the things I want most for my kids is that they have a strong sense of self. Yes. Not only self-identity, but also confidence in themselves. And as a kid, personally, I remember always having that. Mm. And it's carried with me to my adult life. And I see others who don't, peers, yep. people I coach who don't have that. And, and I don't know if I can help them or not. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. So it's just an interesting topic. And I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but it's one that I ask a lot of people that compete at high levels because it seems like those that have success have it for whatever reason, whether it's innate or whether it was somehow trained. Mm-hmm. Any answers yeah. for me there? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I understand completely <clears throat> what you're talking about as a father. And, and um, it, it is hard because I, with, with Colt, my son, you know, Colt, he's eight years old. And um, literally he has, well, he's kind of coming around a little bit, but just about zero desire to be competitive like to be to be uh, to beat people 
and, and, you know, in like basketball and soccer, you know, in times he's just played, um, you know, he's the other team would score and he'd be like, yeah, good job. And <laughs> high five in him. And I'm like, what the heck is wrong with you? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, he's got two of the most competitive parents, you know, ever. Right. And he's like, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, what? what? And, but he is. And I, and I understand that because, you know, I was like, when did I really get competitive and just really, you know, how old was I? And <clears throat> I was a little younger than him probably, but um, I can see that he's starting to get there. Yeah. Um, but I think that the most important thing for me is to kind of help him realize that, um, you know, he's, he's the most important things to just to be, um, to be happy and to treat other people kindly in the way you would want to be treated, just like old golden rule. Yeah. And, um, those are the most important things. And, and, um, which is, which I'm proud of that because he's definitely that way. And I, hope as he grows older it'll continue that way but i also hope he becomes a <laughs> little bit more uh competitive yeah, um and and i honestly it's it is coming around i can see it now a little bit more but um yeah it's it, it is and i don't know honestly um ju- i think there's just people that are just like hey i'm happy to be out there participating and that's just the way it is right and that's okay uh, yeah and that's totally okay absolutely yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, I say for me, it's two things I want to instill in my kids. One, respect. Mm-hmm. Respect people, respect ideas. And then strong sense of self-confidence and self-identity. But I have the same dilemma with my eight-year-old, who I believe is just a couple years younger than Colt. A couple months, sorry, a couple months younger. He's a December birthday, I think. Colt's September, October. He's September, yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> and my eight-year-old, also the same way, is mm-hmm. not competitive he does well when he's just playing mm-hmm. when the whistle's not blowing, when there's no game at stake mm-hmm. and he's just out there playing, that's when he'll perform his best. But once the spotlight's on, <laughs> yeah, he sort of, he becomes disinterested anyway. It's really interesting. But my oldest who's 10 will cut your head off and, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and try to beat you. <laughs> over and over again. So it's so interesting to see that. And how did it? How did that compare? Um, at uh, when your ten year old was was eight, you know, or he was, was the same way. He's eight. always been that way. Okay, he's so, always been competitive yeah. since he was as as long as I can remember. You know, yeah. three, four. He was showing signs of just wanting to win. Mm-hmm. And the eight year old, it's been the opposite from the beginning. And so yeah. it also tells me that some of it's just the way they were born. Now. Mm-hmm. Some people would say, well, it's birth order because, you mm-hmm. know, the firstborn and then the middle child because sure. we have a third. But who knows? Anyway, it's a as a parent and as a coach, it's a, a question I often ask. And so whenever I get the chance to ask it, especially with people that show that confidence from an early age, I, I'm just curious. Let's talk about in the book. For me, the book, when I read it the first time, and this would have probably been early 2000s. When I first got into running, I played soccer growing up, got into running after I quit soccer, was in college at that time, did a 10K, and then did my second race was a marathon. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Wow, Just moved awesome. straight up. Yeah, yeah. But I was, I didn't know what I was doing, and I ended up getting injured, getting a stress fracture training for my first marathon because I was just going too hard all the time. I didn't know how to balance things. I also had probably... 15 pounds of muscle from playing soccer that I was carrying that I don't carry anymore. Right. And so that extra weight was probably also inhibiting me. But ultimately I got hurt, ended up sitting out for three months, letting that stress fracture heal and dove into coaching books at the time. And, and at that time, one of the books I picked up was running with the Buffaloes. And so my early influences as a coach was reading that book for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. And I know you've talked on other podcasts and on your interviews with Let's Run about some of the more nostalgic things about the book, but I wanted to talk about some of the training lessons, maybe some do's, maybe some don'ts that we can pick up from the book. One of the things that Wetmore emphasized, given his Lydiard background, was miles. Right. And you as a senior were, or you, you, you were running 100 mile weeks plus doing 20 mile plus long runs yeah, and mostly in singles, not a lot of doubles from what I understand. Yes. Yep. And so 
what did you learn during that time about the importance of volume for an athlete? During that time, um, what I learned was essentially that it was very important. Um, <laughs> now that was at that time. Um, and it wasn't what I, what I knew was there were guys, I mean, my sweet spot was right around 90 miles where, where I was like able to maintain and really still have great workouts and, um, feel good. And, um, you know, everyone's different. Um, your, your natural ability is going to kind of in my opinion, dictate where, what you can handle. And um, there's people out there that are amazing athletes, amazing um, runners who max out it's 70, 75 miles a week in your land, and then they're out there competing, you know, up with the best of them. And, um, you know, so you, it's, I think it's individualized. Um, you can get uh, a little bit... Um, I don't know, uh, obsessive with the miles. I think the bottom line is more consistency. Um, it's, it's the week after week after week after week of, of putting in the miles uh, um, and, and maintaining um, and staying healthy. So yeah. at the time, I didn't necessarily, I mean, I could look at it and look back and go, all right, I've had 13 weeks of 90, you know, 90 miles and I'm, I'm feeling great. And um, I don't know that I necessarily, I mean, I did, but not as didn't realize as the importance of uh, that consistency more than just putting in more miles. Uh, because I remember thinking, ah, oh, man, if I could just put in ten more miles, like I could, you know, what could I do? And but I, my, I couldn't handle that much, that much really. You yeah. know, I could have a week here and there where I'd hit a hundred miles or a little bit over. Like I think my highest mileage week at, uh, ever was uh, like one hundred eight. And, uh, you know, that was like one time ever. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I think that back then it, it, was, it was very important. One of the things we talk about on this podcast when we talk about training is the importance of that long run as a part of that. And some people will be surprised when I tell them you might be training for a 10K or a half marathon, but it's still important to do potentially if you're prepared for it and can recover from it 18 mile long runs or even maybe a 20 mile long run mm -hmm. you guys were training for 10k cross country shorter than that on the track doing 22 i think you had some 22 mile long runs in the book mm -hmm. what do you think that did for you when it came to preparing for race day um it, it developed strength and the consistency and the mileage, uh, and, and long runs, you know, it, my, my thing is, uh, and what I always say is that uh, strength equals speed. Um, if you're strong and you put in the miles and, um, you, you can within a week or two, just by doing a couple, um, high intensity sessions with maybe some anaerobic, a little bit of anaerobic stuff, go out and run really fast because your strength is there. Um, and so I, I think it's the, um, to run 22 miles, um, that was actually a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did one 22 mile run and, and that was a mistake. I was with Chris, Chris was riding Lear, Chris Lear was riding with me on the bike and it was out at the aqueduct and I was running way too fast <laughs> and I was just like, I, I wanted to just, whatever reason I was out there, I'm just like, this is on your, and I just wanted to destroy it. And, um, kind of didn't realize how far out we got um instead of turning around at you know right at 10 miles it ended up being 11 yeah. and um came back and i don't remember my overall time it was something like um it was right around 50. two hours yeah yeah it was right yeah. around two hours and um for 22 miles and mark was <laughs> he was pissed he's like what the hell and he thought shit he's he just ruined it all you know you closed pretty fast that day too apparently yeah i did i was running i think i was running sub five for a for a, a lot of it <laughs> and i mean but i felt good and and i was talking with chris and you know it's just one of those days i just i did it and it, luckily it didn't uh set me back so um i'm very lucky that because I very easily could have messed myself up and, you know, done something, 
it, it could have, you know, in a lot of ways, it could have easily taken something out of me. It could have, you know, aggravated something and then, which maybe could have potentially put me out for a week or two of, you know, and that would have been devastating. So, yeah. yeah. It seemed like a lot of those runs got pretty aggressive <laughs> reading through the book where people were jockeying for positions. You had your little subgroups, but sometimes mm -hmm. people would try to run up with you or, or, you know, with groups that they shouldn't run up with and you were seemingly closing everyone fairly hard. Mm -hmm. Do you think you guys got too aggressive on some of those? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a tough, it's tough. Uh, I, I think that too aggressive, I think for some people, yes. Um, I felt, I felt good about my, ability to be aggressive and what I could do and uh, my, you know, be able to close hard. I think some of the times, uh, some of the other guys, if they were really stretching, going out on the limb to, to be jockeying for position or whatever else, um, that can be a little detrimental because they maybe one day, their particular day where they're like on fire, they just feel great. And now they're just laying it all out there. And a lot of times when that happens, it just creates um, an injury and um, exhaustion, and so I think it's you know it's really key to know where your where your spot is and be able to kind of maintain that. And um, you know, sure, here and there you can have a you know a day where you're just kind of unleashing, um, but the but it, the key is is honestly is try to stick to the workout as as close as you can, and um, because it's it's you know Mark would he developed the workouts he would he was very specific and in, in his um and methodical in in his what he wanted each person to do so um yeah it it was you know pretty key to be able to just know that spot know where you are and and try not to go too crazy stay in your lane yeah that was one thing that struck me reading it back recently that i don't think i had internalized as well from the first time was every single one of that those workouts he had a specific number of reps with specific great paces he wanted everybody to do. And it seemed like for the most part, people would follow that, but there was some of that kind of getting out of their lane as people became competitive. Mm -hmm. I remember one anecdote with you and Slattery yeah. where you know, he, yeah. he somehow was catching up to you on one of the mile repeats and you, and you yelled at him, run your workout. <laughs> And then admonished him afterwards to focus on the process. And yeah. I think he, he called you a name or something in the he, moment. He just said, it, it's my last one, bitch. <laughs> right, right. So, <laughs> and I went, all right, whatever. So what, so what about that? Because I do think that's important as an athlete is to learn what your lane is, but you're also then trying to balance at what point can you move up? Can you get out of the lane and sort of see a breakthrough? And that can be a difficult line to, to follow. Yeah, uh, definitely. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, then I was very, you know, like you said, the process, like respect the process and, and kind of do the workout. And, you know, he, in that particular one, I think maybe I was doing six by a mile and he was doing four or five. I, I don't remember. And on his last one, he was just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna unleash and just <laughs> run with Goucher the whole time. And I mean, I don't remember the pace I was running, uh, but it was probably 20 seconds faster than he was supposed to be running. And he was just, you know, when he said, it's my last one, bitch, I was like, all right, whatever. You know, because I <laughs> said, I said you, should, you, you should, it's important. You do your own workout, do what you're supposed to do. And then he, he was, was a freshman then too. He so. was a freshman and, and he wanted to knock off the big dog, you know, like, and he wanted to, you know, show that he could do that. And, um, it wasn't a good idea for him <laughs> see, you know, it was like, cause I was like, all right, whatever. And then it just, I squeezed it down and, and I man only ran like maybe a couple seconds faster than what I was, you know, what I was supposed to, but he blew up. Yeah. You know, he ended up running, you know, five, like probably, I don't remember exactly. He, he was like, about 20 seconds back, I think at the end of the repeat. Right. Of and, you. and, and he didn't hit his time. Yeah. You know, because he went out too hard, and yeah. So anyway, it's yeah, it's it's fun. Um, I'm trying to remember what Mark said uh, used to say, I, and I'm I'm not gonna 
<laughs> I'm not going to remember something about, you know, when you, when you live on uh, King Mountain, uh, every, every day someone's trying to knock you off, you know, some, something like yeah. that. And, and it's true, you know, and it would get frustrating. It seemed like you were often by yourself, but then somebody would be coming back to nip your heels at some point trying to, as you said, knock, knock off the king. And I, I can, I can imagine that would be frustrating. I don't know what that's like, but I'm sure it was frustrating. It was, it was definitely frustrating. And, and more than anything, it would be like a Sunday run. Um, and it would be post-collegiate athletes, like some you know, pro athletes that would meet us for our long runs. And then they'd want to stick it to me. And <laughs> Um, it was very hard for me to let, let that happen. And so, um, you know, I, so those are the times where you, like, I probably ran too hard, you know, and, um, it got frustrating cause it was just like, seriously, you, you know, like right. I'm trying to do my thing and you're, you know, you're not training for, we're training for different things and you're just, so it, it definitely got frustrating at times and, and I definitely got to the point where I'm like, whatever, um, I'm doing my thing and you can do yours and that's, that's fine. So. Mark is a big proponent of periodization. Yes. Seems like you guys in that cross country build to nationals almost had a, a sort of mini segments. He talks about five in the book where you're building miles and you're working on a little bit of anaerobic work, then going into aerobic work and then finishing off the season basically with the fast stuff. Mm-hmm. Talk about that and how important you think it was to your development. I, you know, I mean, that's what I got used to. Um, that's what I knew. Uh, so it's, it's what I believed and what worked for me. So I didn't have any, sec- I didn't second guess it any, yep. at any time. And, and it, I think that, I think that is still the best way to coach. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I've had, I, I think that there are other ways, but particularly for me, that was the best way to coach me. And luckily that was his philosophy. <laughs> yeah. And or, I mean, it's like, I, obvi- I fell into it and it was, it worked and you know, it was maybe a blessing. I, I don't know, but, um, could I have been successful doing it a different way? Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, probably somewhat, but I I just don't know. So what we did, the way we did it, that was, that's what I knew was my, you know, bread and butter. I mean, one luxury of it in a way was that you could peak once. I mean, you were building towards a single peak in the season. Right. And, whereas I think in some places, maybe it's a little bit different where, Maybe they have other little mini peaks they're trying to get ready for, but he was very conscious with you, especially about this is about one day. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a luxury in some ways. It is. Um, but it's also, it's also really tough because, because of that, we weren't given the opportunity to really go out at any point and, you know, like in, in track to really run fast. So when you're in a championship race, it, it comes down to strategy a lot of times. And, it, and people are kind of you know, vying for their position and they're, you know, and it can be really slow and, you know, and then fast and then whatever back off and then a huge kick or something. Um, <clears throat> but when you, so you're not really typically going to run really fast times. Um, and so that we didn't have very many opportunities, but when we would go, say like Mount Sac, that was our big, a big one, and not, and then not being able to taper going in, um, kind of got frustrating because, mm. you know, those are the times when you kind of just get in line and you just kind of run and you're not really thinking and you're just clicking off, you know, splits and that, when you really run fast. Um, so yeah, it's a, a luxury in in some way, like it it works but it's kind of a little scary at the same time because you're putting all your eggs in one basket um for that one day uh but the the flip side which i realized after the fact um as a professional athlete training that way was it it made it really tough to have a long european season Mm. so like by the end of um i might be able to do a couple races get through usa's um, get my spot on the team and then go to uh, world championships and 
by then I was just, I'm done. I'm fried, you mm-hmm. know, and there's still like a month and a half of, of competitions, you know, throughout Europe that right. everyone else is going to. And I'm like, yeah, I'm done. I need to go home. And <laughs> so I think that that's what kind of made it, that also made it tough. Yeah. So, um, and I think that was because of the, the training of a one real peak. peak. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we have a lot of people in our, that are listeners that are training for marathons and they might be peaking for that mm-hmm. big day, which as you say, it might be optimal from a periodization standpoint, but it's also challenging because you're putting all, all your eggs in one basket and it could be difficult to trust mm-hmm. that that one day you're going to be ready. <laughs> and for you, you know, the prior year to what's covered in the book, you got sick. Yep. And so putting all your eggs in that basket ended up haunting you a little bit, but then obviously it came back and you won it the next year. So how do you get over that idea of the pressure of having everything relying on one peak? Mm, good question. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I said, it would kind of be, it was my normal. Um, when I look back now, I kind of like, ugh. <laughs> but it's so brutal because it could be something um, like a cult, something gets you right at the end. And that's, it's like the marathon and just marathon is, is, can be such an awful, awful, like it's such a mean, <laughs> right. brutal, uh, sport, like, you know, run, it's unreal because you can train for six, nine months with the idea that you're going in, you're going to go into, you know, whatever race and you're going to, you're going to run your fastest time ever and everything can go perfect everything can go perfect. And then, you know, a week out, something stupid happened. You twist your ankle, something like that. And now like that little thing potentially screws up everything that you've been working for because you're preparing to run this race. And if you do run the race and push through, you're not going to be able to come back, you know, two weeks later and do another one. You're not gonna be able to do it again. You have to let your body rest. So it's, it's, I, you know, and I wouldn't, I never would have realized that until Kara started running marathons. And then like, for instance, what happened to her in Houston, where her hamstring went on her. Um, and it's like, shit, all she wanted to do was, I mean, she wasn't even, she didn't care about her time. She didn't care. She's like, I just want to cross that line another time and, and feel good and just enjoy it. All she wanted to do was enjoy it. And so, and she didn't get that. Right. And it's just like, God, it's so brutal. Um, so, and it is. So when we, with that type of training, especially in cross country, um, you only have that one shot, right? Um, for the most part. I mean, I guess in track you do too, but right. if you're trying to do multiple peaks and you run, you know, you can kind of come back a, a week later. But after NCAA championships, in cross country, you're, there's no more cross country, <laughs> right? It, yeah. So yeah, it can really bite you in the ass and it's like, it's, it's not fun. You know, it, kinda, <laughs> it really sucks when something like that happens, but you just try to put it out of your head. I remember just thinking like when I was sick and just going, it doesn't, it's not going to affect me. Just, just, just don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, it doesn't matter how much I told myself that it didn't affect me. I was <laughs> sick as a dog. Like right. my nose is running. Like I just, my throat hurt and just like couldn't breathe. You know, it's just, and you still finished fourth, yeah, which is pretty damn good yeah. for doing it with a cold. Another thing that struck me reading back the book is obviously there were a lot of workouts, as I mentioned, where Wetmore was really specific with you guys, but there were also a lot of them where he didn't he didn't talk about pace, he just talked about effort, yep. and even in that last race beforehand before NCAA final or cross country championship. He said, there won't be any splits out there. There won't be any mile markers. Use your sensory data yep. was the quote from the book. And I think that's so important for athletes to learn to run by feel. Yeah. So for you, how, how did you f- learn to find that rhythm to get into the flow of it versus worrying about what your watch says? Um, it was all I knew. <laughs> I mean. Didn't I have sh- Garmin's back then, didn't right? Didn't have Garmin's. Yeah. So, and pacing. Um, you know, we're doing a workout. Sure. He wants you to hit this pace. So you kind of learn that pace, but you're not, I never would wear a watch and look at my watch constantly. And which is, 
later in my career, you know, that's what I did. And I think a lot of people worry about that. Um, and to, to learn what your sensory data is, what you're intrinsically capable of doing, where you get to that spot um, is, I agree, so important to know where that line is. And I think for a lot of people, it's hard for them to find that because of always worrying about their watch, always wearing their watch, always looking down at my on pace, am I not on pace? You're worrying about that instead of listening to your body yeah. and listening to what you're capable of. And, um, you know, when I was in high school, I ran 35 miles a week and I never had a watch you know, worrying about pacing. I just ran and, you know, I'd do, you know, whatever it was, it was, you know, my coach would say whatever pace and, and she'd be waiting there at the, you know, at whatever point it was and say, all right, you're on pace. That's great. Keep it going or, you know, whatever. And so I didn't really even think about it with time. And as you said, there weren't garments, there weren't <laughs> stuff to really know, like if when you're out on a run, like, oh, that was a mile, I should be running a little bit faster or slower. Um, so I think that the day in and day out, you, for us, you learned it because it wasn't about focusing on your Garmin, you know, we would go out and say, this is a 10 mile run. And it would, you know, it might've been nine and three quarters or, you know, 10 and a quarter. We didn't, you know, you don't really know, I guess, um, unless you're out there with a wheel measuring it. And with that, you can't be, you know, you don't know where my, there's no mile markers out there. You don't know where the mile markers are. So you just, you just run by feel. You know, if he says, he would say, well, this is a um, medium intensity day, um, you know, or a brisk day, you know, and you just kind of learned what that meant. Mm -hmm. And, or this is an easy day. and you know, that's, that's what learning your sense, that's where, how you build and create your sensory data. That's, yeah. that's how it works. And if it worked for multi NCAA champion, then it can work for everybody. But it's true. We got to take off our garments more often. Yeah. Or at least not look at them certain, certain times. I think for me, I usually wear it all the time and I'll start and maybe do my lap splits, mm -hmm. but oftentimes won't pay attention until afterwards. So yeah. I'm going by feel entirely during the workout. And then you download it and you kind of calibrate how you felt with what the data says. And that's, it can, can, can be a, a helpful exercise to calibrate your, mm -hmm. your efforts. But I agree, completely being obsessed with it is not productive and we've gotten to obsessed with it. So it's good to be reminded from the book that back in the day, you didn't have a choice. Yeah. Plus you guys were running at altitude too, which also has yeah. those variables where you can't really know anyway because you're at... Seven, yeah, it's seven thousand feet. Your your effort is related to what you know that Mark would say. Okay, well, I don't know. For instance, let's say you were going to run. I want you to run this ten miles in sixty-five minutes or something. You know, we didn't think about well, if it were at sea level, you might be saying run it in sixty minutes. It wasn't like you know we didn't really equate it that way. It was just what we knew, um, and you know, the difference in that altitude versus, you know, sea level. And so it was just, it, that's really the most important thing is just kind of being able to just go by feel and just get rid of the watch. Um, you know, just wear the watch on workout days and, um, or just don't put the GPS on when you're doing a 10 mile run, go, go by time, go by you, what you know is a 10 mile course or an eight mile course go. And then, yeah. Enjoy it. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes from the book comes from Wetmore, and it sort of bakes today still my philosophy as a coach. He says, stick to the plan and you'll be surprised by what you can do. There are no miracles in running. He said, there might be miracles in other sports. <laughs> and he said, not wrestling. I know wrestling. There's no miracles in wrestling. <laughs> but I can't talk about other sports, basically. Yeah. But this idea that, and, and the way he approached races, oftentimes he would tell you guys exactly what you were going to run. Mm -hmm. And then that would happen because you'd done the work to support that outcome. And, and so that had always stuck with me as, you know, running is about, you get out what you put in mm -hmm. and I've never as an athlete relied on some magical extra on race day because I either believe I put in the work or I didn't. And, but there are those out there that will say, but race day, there's magic to be had. There's adrenaline, there's endorphins, there's all those things. 
And I don't necessarily subscribe to that idea that there's magic out there. In reflection on this idea of there's no miracles or there are miracles to be had, where do you stand? Um, there's no miracles to be had. <laughs> okay. I think I agree with you 100%. If you've done the work, you're, you're going to be able to run what you're capable of running. And it's not like you've done the work and now all of a sudden you're going to run a minute faster than you're, you've worked for. That doesn't happen. Um, because as soon as you try, uh, that's when you screw up, screw it all up and you run way slower than you should have run. Um, so I don't believe there's any miracles in, in running either. Um, it's, it's just a matter of the work you put in and the results will come. Let's talk about recovery for a second. The book talks about you going to do massages for the first time that season and paying 40 bucks i'm assuming that was out of your own pocket to get that extra recovery benefit oh yeah do you did that make you a believer in massage do you still get them and you know how do you think about that especially now that we know more you know back then it was probably a relatively new thing to even be thinking about massage but now it seems like a pretty common thing people are talking about but for you did that become a part of your regiment going forward absolutely I bl- I was a huge believer of it because I was starting to get um kind of almost like a, a twingy pain in my like SI joint in my iliac crest area and that's just kind of where your hamstring attaches or your you know glute meat or whatever attaches and it was just aggravated and kind of you know beat up and it just needed to be flushed out and as soon as I went and saw Al. Um, Cupsack, who uh, was my massage therapist then, and w- even to this day, if I get a massage, that's who I go to. <laughs> um, he got me feeling, by the f- after the first time I saw him, I felt probably 50% better. And then I went and saw him again, and it was like, I'm 100%. You know, it was just amazing to me. And it's, the, it is very important to have recovery beyond just, you know, your your protein shake after your run or whatever um you need to you need to have massage i mean that really helps it's not not everybody but it doesn't and it doesn't have to be every week but it's really good to get in there and break up you know the little adhesion scar tissues that have you know kind of formed over the last few weeks or or whatnot and flush the legs and just you know kind of kind of just rejuvenate yourself Yeah. yeah i just interviewed an author named Christy Eshwanda, and she has a book out called Good to Go on the Science of Recovery. It's really fascinating. Basically, the book debunks everything you thought you knew about recovery, (laughs) including that there's no science supporting massage. But I still get one every three weeks because it works for me. I have a similar experience. And she would even say that too, that if you believe it works for you and it does work for you, then that's fine. But it's interesting that there's actually no scientific data supporting that as a tool. But but partially that's because it's just hard to measure. Of course. I want to talk about weight because, again, reading back, I knew that weight was something that was an important topic in the book and mm-hmm. that you hadn't eaten lunches, from, you know, or you were skipping lunches a big part of that season. But Wetmore in the book just calls you fat. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and that was something that was openly talked about. I think now that would probably be an oh, issue. Yeah. You, no, couldn't, yeah. you couldn't, as a coach, talk to athletes about weight like that. So as you reflect on that, obviously there's a balance as a distance runner on being, you know, lean, but not too lean and still having the the structure to support what you're doing, being strong as well as lean. But, but you lost weight that season, you're skipping lunches. What, how do you reflect on that? Because now a coach wouldn't be able to tell an athlete that. Yeah, no. And, and just to clarify, I wasn't skipping, I've never done skipped lunches to lose weight okay um i don't believe in i never have and some people will get caught up in that but that's one thing where wetmore could not mind screw me on okay like (laughs) it was you know he'd be like i remember going into the the office and and he'd you know be looking at you know reading a track and field news and he'd look at me goes look at this and he flipped it flip it over and he goes pointing at this picture of this emaciated, you know, Kenyan, um, you know, athlete lean, you know, crazy lean. And, and it's like, you need to look like that. And I'm like, I'll never look like that. I'm, 
my body type is not going to work that way. Yeah. I naturally have muscle. I naturally have a, a bigger chest. I, you know, you, as soon as you get obsessed about losing that weight, that's when you screw yourself over mm-hmm. because you focus on losing that weight because you think, oh, I need to lose a few more pounds. Why? Who says you need to lose a few more pounds? The idea is to get to the weight where you perform the best. And there's no magic number. Everyone's different. Yeah. And my, in 2007, I was having a um, great, you know, I had a great year. Um, but um, by the time I went to world championships and after racing, I was just, I felt like shit. Felt like shit. And I was the lightest I'd ever been in my running career. I was at 136, 137. And, and a lot of that was because at the time of being coached by Salazar and, you know, and they, and him and Galen, they'd, they'd be eating, you know, you'd be eating there and they just, he'd be like, wait, you're going to eat all that. And I, <laughs> and then I actually got subconscious about it. And, um, I was just like, yeah. And so I really wasn't eating as much as I normally was. And literally my season was screwed by it. When I got back mm-hmm. home, I, like I said, I was 136 and I was like, Oh my God, my ideal racing weight was like 140, 142, and you know, maybe 139 to 142 at the most. That's mm-hmm. when I really felt my best. So just because somebody looks at you and says, you need to lose weight, <laughs> when you're putting in the work, your body's taking care of itself. It's burning the weight it needs, it's burning the fat that it needs. And yes, if you are are carrying around some extra fat, then yeah. But when you're training a hundred miles a week or, you know, you don't have extra fat. on you. I don't care what anyone says, right. you know? So, cause you will, by the time it's time to race, you will have burned it off. Um, so I, I actually always hated that whole thing. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the guys after me, um, you know, like the Torres brothers and, 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 uh, Dathan, they would have competitions to see who could get the lightest. And I'm like, you guys are sick. Mm-hmm. Like, that's disgusting to me. Honestly, I was just like, what the hell's wrong with you? Yeah. Um, you know, and unfortunately there's the guys have happens to guys. And then on the flip side, it really unfortunately happens more to the women. And mm-hmm. it's just, that's where there's no room for it. In my opinion more than anything. I mean, yeah, even with the guys this day and age, probably shouldn't be saying to the guys, the guys can handle it more, but not to have a double standard, you definitely can't be pushing that on, on young women. Yeah. Um, you'll, you can screw their lives up from that point on. No doubt about that. That balance is important. Yeah. And everybody, as you said, has to find it for themselves. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about team because obviously the team dynamic with you and all the guys was huge. You guys ended up getting third that year, had a bunch of injuries, could have competed for the title had you not lost some people to injury and obviously lost Chris mm-hmm. to the tragic death. What do you remember about that team and what was so magical about it? Um, I think that it was just, there was no bullshit. You know, everyone was there to work. And I mean, I think compared to other teams, yeah, you know, we had, there's maybe a little bit of bullshit here and there, like <laughs> ass grabbing, whatever, not literally ass grabbing, right. you know, like joking off, whatever. Um, it was, it would just be, you know, but that's just young guys here and there. But when it came time to work, we worked and we were disciplined in that. And we were disciplined in um, not doing anything but focusing on running. And over the years, I mean, we had a, we had a bond, we had a, a kind of a, a brotherhood, and you know, we we all cared for one another. We all wanted everyone to succeed, and we wanted to be the best we could be as a team. And we knew we were underdogs because we didn't have a team full of superstars that were flown in from Africa or Ireland or you know, like you know, Mark was about developing American athletes, and um, that made us that pumped us up that got us excited so we took you know some of the best athletes in the state of colorado at, at that time like in my recruiting class me um tommy reese adam batliner jay johnson um we all came in and you know together all all some of the best athletes in the you know state championships at that time 
and we just kind of wanted to develop what we could, you know, out of everyone, it was like, what can we do? How awesome would it be if we could put together a team? Well, of course, Chris Severy came in in that class yeah. too. Um, what could we put together a team of us five at the national championship time sometime and actually win? And that's really what we, you know, we were all excited about because especially going into that year, we really felt we probably wouldn't have had all five of us there, but, um, you know, uh, like Jay Johnson was, was, uh, struggling with, you know, injury, not doing so well at that time. But, um, we, we were excited about that opportunity, um, because we felt like we, we could, like how awesome would that have been? And so, um, I don't know. We were, we were close. I think a lot of the other guys were closer than I was with the other guys because of that intensity. (laughs) And I mean, I, I loved, loved all of them. And I was pumped for all of them when they'd run great and uh, bummed for them when they'd had, you know, injured. And, um, but you know, we were, we were close. Yeah. And we wanted to succeed together. Wrapping up, I want to talk about Chris's death a little bit and processing that, if, if you're okay with that. Mm-hmm. I lost a friend at 23, a roommate, a guy who was going to be in my wedding. He got hit head on by a drunk driver, and we had another roommate. We, he and I were the first ones to find out, and so I was told by the police who knocked on the door that my friend had died in this car accident. And so I know it's a, a little bit about what it's like to lose somebody at that age so young and so tragically and obviously time heals and I remember him especially on that anniversary of that day but I still and and I remember Wetmore talking in the book about you know living his qualities out as a way to to honor and celebrate his life and that's something I remember us talking about when we had a memorial service for my friend. But even now, and now I'm, well, I guess 16 years post his death, I still feel guilty that I'm not honoring his life the way I could. And it's not a burden I carry, but it is something I think about here and there, certainly on the anniversary of his death. And, um, and then just, occasionally it'll pop into my mind as I reflect on him and he was a guy in a lot of ways had similar characteristics to Chris like huge friend team guy just somebody who would always go out of his way to help help out another friend no matter what so talk about the processing that for you and is it something that you're still processing in ways like I described yeah I I think so um it that's the first time um, you know, I lost anybody besides, you know, close to me, um, besides my grandparents, you know, um, and I was, and everybody was just in shock and hysteric, you know, just questioning everything. And, um, we, we did, we all, you know, wanted to, especially that year, we wanted to do it for Chris, you know, what can we do, even though he's not here, like, this is for him. and. Um, every year, you know, like you said, time heals, right? So as you get further away from, from that day, um, you kind of get to the point where there's a few times during the year, at least for me, you know, where I'm just kind of pops in my head and I think, you know, I have a memory. Um, but when, you know, on that day is the day of really a lot of reflection and, um, you know, wishing that he could be there and just kind of knowing what his life would have, would have been and how he would have, you know, what he would have done. Cause he would have done some amazing, amazing things. Um, and yeah, you do feel a little bit guilty here and there. I mean, I, I do as well when, when I feel like I'm not like thinking about him enough. Um, but as time heals, like that's just a natural progress or progression. I think you, it doesn't change the fact that you love him and you miss him. It's just that you have other things in life that kind of take you away from that. And you have to step away from it and heal or else if you, cause if you don't and you're, and you're endlessly obsessed with it, you're not going to be able to live your life. Yeah. So, um, I get what you're saying. Uh, 
but at the end of the day, I think there's really times when, when it's that day, it's an anniversary where you, you know, you, you reach out to your, all the boys and you, you know, you, you just say, you know, just kind of give them a, you know, Hey, it's thinking about Chris today or whatever. And, you know, just something simple. Yeah. And, um, it, and it means a lot and it, and this being the 20, 20th anniversary in 2018, yeah. um, we had everybody, we had a, a big, um, celebration here in Boulder for him and his mom and sister and family came in and it was, it was really, really cool, um, to, to celebrate him. It's cool to have the book too. Yes. As a forever way to memorialize him. Last question. You talked with Chris Chavez about Colt reading the book at some point. He's Mm -hmm. in second grade now. Soon we'll be of age where he could actually pick it up. Who knows? That might Mm -hmm. be four years. It might be five. It might be two. If if you could have him take away one thing from it, what would it be? I I think it would be um the importance of having something important enough to fight for. Um to put in the effort, to put in the time to be the best that you can be whatever the outcome is but to commit yourself to that. And I think that that's a very, very important lesson for anybody to learn that, and to, to have that goal, to have that desire to, to put everything aside for essentially um, during that time to focus on, on that. And I really, I think that's probably what it would be. That's Honestly. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Do the work, be on the journey. Well, this has been awesome, Adam. Thank you for taking the time. We really appreciate you reflecting on the book. And for those that haven't yet gone out to check it out, go get runningwiththebuffaloes.com. You can get it pretty much anywhere books are sold. And I just got it on Kindle again. So now I can take it wherever <laughs> I'm going. But go check it out. Thanks again, Adam. We yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it too. So there you go, Adam Goucher, everyone. Of course, as I mentioned, just mentioned, go Grab a copy of Running with the Buffaloes if you haven't already. Also, check out Adam's website, runtheedge.com. You can still join the the Run the Year Challenge if you have all your data saved on Strava or Garmin. You can still retroactively be included in that challenge if you want to build towards 2019 miles in 2019. Thanks again, of course, to Adam and Kara for hosting me in Boulder a few weeks back. It's been an inspiration to get to to know the two of them. So that's it for this one, everybody. This has been episode 116 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.